Well, welcome again. Thank you, James, and thank you, team, and thank you for worshiping with us today. Isn't it sweet? A little over a year ago, I mean, I think it's sweet. Anybody with me on that? Talk to me. Talk to me. I, uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, we started our way through Revelation. And we saw in Revelation chapter 1 that that picture, that vision that John had on Patmos of the risen Christ, the one that John loved in a lifetime who was tortured and tried and tortured and crucified and died and was buried and rose again. He saw a vision of the living Christ in Revelation chapter 1. Read it again, it will stir your soul. And then he had, then he was given instructions to give to the pastors or to the angels or to the messengers of the churches, the seven churches, a letter for each of those seven churches. And those, those uh, people traveled around giving those letters to those churches. And we studied our way through those. And we got almost through that. And COVID came and we went out on the roof. And we did some unique things out there. And then we taught through Philippians. And then we came back inside. And we came back inside. We picked up on the letters to the churches and finished those. And then we went to the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. And we saw a vision of the throne room of God, the control center of the universe. It was as if when we look at the chaos around us, we need to have a regular vision of what's happening in heaven with God and Jesus and the Lamb and the angels and the slain Lamb in order to orient our hearts, in order to give us courage. So we were in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. And then in Revelation chapter 6, the story took a very dark, very terrifying turn. And from Revelation chapter 6 until Revelation chapter 18, we have a vivid and frightening, a horrifying description of a period of time in the future that will be called the tribulation. There's a big chunk of Revelation. God, the Holy Spirit, wants the church to understand and be warned ahead of time. There's a dark time coming before the return of Christ in power and great glory in which God will, through a time of tribulation, bring to himself a harvest of souls, many Jewish uh, people, a harvest of souls before he returns in power and great glory and establishes a 1,000-year reign upon the earth. And then after that, other things we'll, we'll talk about them when we get there. So here's what we've been doing. We've been reading our way through the last book of the Bible. Brother came to my study this week, and he said a pastor once told a new convert, what you ought to do is you ought to read the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. Because if you as a new believer read the book of Genesis, which is a fascinating series of stories, and you read the book of Revelation, which is obviously a vivid and fascinating narrative, if you read Revelation, you know, you read Genesis, you know where you came from. And if you read Revelation, you know where you're going. That's good. When I heard that, I thought, that's worthwhile. So now we've been reading our way through the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And we've been thinking our way through Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And we have been trembling our way through Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And God willing, God helping us, we have been obeying our way through Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And we have been 
trembling and worshiping our way through Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and God helping us. And even today, we would want to contribute to this. We've been rejoicing our way through Revelation, the last book of the Bible. This is quite a book. This is quite a time to think we, each week we gather together having, I trust and pray, have read this, the text ahead of time and asked questions of the text ahead of time and prepared our hearts to gather and assemble as God-fearing people. And we've opened our Bibles again and we say, what do you have for us, Holy Spirit? Now what we have, if you remember in Revelation, is you have in Revelation 6 through 18, you have three series of seven judgments, 21 judgments that are symbolized initially by seven seal judgments. The scroll is unsealed, and when a seal is broken, this is symbolic for a judgment coming on the earth. And in the middle of those broken seals, those judgments coming on the earth, you have an interruption enough for us to catch our soul breath, our collective breath, and we usually have a vision of heaven so that we're not overwhelmed by what's happening on the earth. And this was the original intent of the author, the Holy Spirit, through John, through the churches at the time, going through persecution, and to us today, that God knew what we would be going through, and these interruptions in those seven seals. And then in the seventh seal, seven more judgments. These are trumpet judgments. And we're on the seventh trumpet judgment now when there's another interruption. And what you have is a little preview of coming attractions, if you will. Preview of coming events. A table of contents for what's about to happen in these chapters uh, 12, 13, and 14. So what you want to understand is you have a little pause and you have an interruption in the break of a chronology. It's not just and then and then and then. You have a little bit of like, oh, let's stop a minute if you're watching a series on television and you might start into another episode and it might say, previously on, in Revelation, and this is, this is what's happening now. So you have a little pause and, it's, and what's going to happen when we look at chapter 14 and verse 1 is it flows directly out of chapter 13, 12 and 13. Chapter 12 introduces the dragon who is Satan and chapter 13, that's in chapter 12, chapter 13 introduces the Antichrist and the false prophet, the beast, as some have called it this unholy trinity. And this is a horrifying thing and horrifying blasphemy. It's very dark, very horrifying, very blasphemous. And about the time it gets too heavy for us to take, all of a sudden the sun comes out from behind the clouds and bursts forth in glory and we're on Mount Zion, and there are 144,000 faithful men singing in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus, favorite, the favorite name in Revelation for Jesus is used over 25 times, the Lamb. And they're on Mount Zion in Revelation 14.1, in the presence of the Lamb. So for your mind to organize what we're going to talk about today, imagine three chunks, three sections in this text. The first one is a picture of the 144,000 young Jewish evangelists fast forward into with when, when the tribulation is over and the kingdom's about to begin, and they are on Mount Zion, I'll explain that later, in the presence of the Lamb, and they are singing. That's chunk number one. That's going to be verses one through five. 
And there are some powerful characteristics. There are some powerful qualities of these men that if we emulate them in the help of the Holy Spirit, we too one day will stand on Zion singing with the Lamb. Now there's another section, and this section is pretty ominous. In this next section, which is going to go from chapter 14, of course, verses 6 through uh, 13, there are three angels that come with vivid warnings, literally flying in the atmospheric heavens above the earth before these horrifying judgments fall from God on the earth, preaching the gospel and warning. Three angels in this section preaching the gospel and warning. So section one, 144,000 singing men who have persevered, sealed, pure, followers of the Lamb, God-fearing men, uh, redeemed saints, standing on Zion with a lamb, one through five. Then three angels flying over the earth, warning the earth, this is about to go down. These bold, these bold judgments are about to be swiftly poured out on the earth. Armageddon is coming. This is the three warnings that come through the three angels in that, in that chunk. Then the chapter 14 ends with two pictures of judgment. Probably the first picture is a picture of the swift, bold judgments that will pour out right at the second coming of Christ. And the second picture of judgment is that, and, and that really is a picture of how swift and sudden the judgment comes. And that's where the bowls are. You know, the, the seal judgments were spread out. The trumpet judgments were spread out. The bowl judgments will be swift at the coming of Christ. And then the second picture of judgment in that third section of this text today is going to picture not a grain harvest, but a grape harvest, a harvest of vintage and a bloody harvest, if you will. And it's a picture of Armageddon, and it ends in the most ominous terms. There you go. Now you have a little bit of a flyover of that. Let's read the text together. We'll explain and worship our way through this together, that God would do in us what the Holy Spirit wanted to do in the hearts of the original hearers, that we would be prepared to go into the world, no matter how dark it is, and conquer and end up on Zion with the Lamb. Lord, bless the reading of your word today. Revelation chapter 14 is in the three sections I introduced by the same phrase in the original language. Then I looked, or behold, I saw. That's how you know there are three sections. Then I looked, behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. A voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is those who have not defiled themselves with women. They are virgins. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. That's the first picture, the Lamb and the 144,000. Now the next vision, then I saw. Another angel flying directly overhead, verse 6, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. 
he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. Let me interrupt my own reading to say when I'm studying a passage of scripture, I go back over after hours. You know, I read about 22 commentaries on this particular passage before I, I write my message. And one of the things I watch for is, is there, where in the text is the big idea most clearly stated? And, and just to give you a hint for your heart and your brain, I think verse 7 is where the big idea is most clearly stated, the central truth of this. Fear God. Give him glory. The hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. Then another angel, a third, followed him saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark in his name. And here's a call for, for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, blessed indeed. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, blessed indeed says the Spirit, for they rest from their labors and their, their, their deeds follow them. Now, third section, another vision. This is of two pictures of a harvest, a grain harvest, a grape harvest. Verse 14, then I looked and behold, a white cloud seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand, and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come. Look back at verse 7. Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of judgment has come. So the hour of to reap, for back to verse 15. The hour to reap has come, for the harvest of earth is fully ripe. For he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Verse 17, the, that's the grain harvest. This is the grape harvest. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. He called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the wine press as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia or for about 200 miles. How often do you fly? I don't fly that much. I'm, I'm not a frequent flyer. When I, when I fly, I'm like a little kid at the fair. I'm looking around like, 
I'm flying in an airplane right now. People go, you have a little seat. I'll go, yeah, but I'm flying in an airplane. People, people go, but you don't have much elbow room. And I look around and go, but I'm in an airplane flying in the sky. And, and, and people, do you want to look out the window? Yes, I want to look out the window. I'm like a kid at the fair. I, and I look around and I think people, I, I think people are faking that they're, they're so cool, they just fly all the time. You know, I look around and they're like, they're not even looking out the window. They go, chunk, close the window. I'm like, what? How can you close the window? You are flying in the air. I heard a comedian say that one time. He said, he said something like this super funny guy. He, he, said, he says, okay, think about this. You're 30,000 feet in the air, sitting in a chair, and you're flying. <laughs> That's the way I think sometimes when I read the revelation to people, they're like, yeah, whatever. John, when he says, and behold, it's like, oh my goodness. Are you seeing, do you, do you realize what you just read? We shouldn't be bored with what we're reading in Revelation. This is an ominous thing. This is reality. Fast forward, God in the power of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Spirit in the Word of God, which has proven itself true, is telling us what's going to happen in the future. There's going to be a Mount Zion. There's going to be a lamb on Mount Zion. Heaven and earth are going to come together. They're going to be guys singing. I love to hear a man. I love to hear women sing a lot, but, but I love to hear a man with just broad-chested love for God standing and just singing. I love to hear a man sing, don't you? <laughs> did, did you guys take sleeping pills today? What up? You, you're just out there going, yeah, yeah. You're making me work. You're just like, just, I'm going to sit here and, sorry, I'm going to chastise you. I love you a lot. I'm just playing with you. But I love to hear a man sing. I, lo- I love that. You know what I love even more? Like when four men get together and they harmonize. And, and not just barbershop, that's good enough. But I mean, guys that are singing from their heart of love for Jesus Christ, redeemed guys. <laughs> Don't you love that? Don't you love it? A men's quartet. Would you mind if I took a minute, took a break in my sermon, we ask a men's quartet to come right now? Yeah. No, of course you wouldn't mind. You'd love that. Well, we're not doing that, but we could. You'd, that would be really cool. <laughs> when I was at Moody Bible Institute, we'll do that soon though. When I was at Moody Bible Institute, I was in a group. It, was, it sounds funny, but it was a great group. It's called Men's Glee. Men's Glee. An old-fashioned way of talking about a big group of guys who really love to sing, and they all love Jesus. And singing in men's glee at Moody Bible Institute was one of the highlights of my life. Just leaning back and letting it fly, singing your heart out for God. Men. One time, my brother-in-law, who came to know the Lord, invited me to Milwaukee to a big men's conference called Promise Keepers. And he, he paid my way. We got on a bus. We went to a men's conference. It was in a big stadium. There were 60,000 men. I, I remember getting off the bus and walking in, and I almost couldn't see my way to walk because I started to weep just to see all these men flowing into this because they were going to sing and they were going to worship God. And I never will forget when the band started and the 60,000 men started to sing, tears streaming down their face, men who'd been touched by the Lamb, 
Some who had gotten saved that week, just singing. Down the row, I could see my brother-in-law, my son, hands lifted up, uninhibited in their praise, just singing. Folks, can you imagine a day in the presence of the Lamb of God when redeemed men, 144,000 strong, are singing praise unto our God? It'd be like the voice of thunder. It'd be like the voice of a waterfall. It'd be like the voice of harps all playing together in the thunder and in the waterfall. This is a beautiful thing. God, in this text, has given us a picture of men here, these 144,000 that were introduced earlier, these young Jewish evangelists who faithfully proclaimed Christ during the tribulation. They were sealed and protected by God. They were redeemed. They were pure. They were followers of the Lamb. They were first fruits of others that would be like them. They were, this picture was given to discouraged Christians to say, these men will persevere. You can, they'll be the first fruits. You can do what they did. Would you like to look at how they're described. Notice this again. The, in verse 1, it says they're sealed. They had the name of the Father and the Son on their foreheads. They belong to the Lord, the final seal of God there in verse 1. I love this. They were singing, and they were singing uh, the song of the redeemed. They had their own song only they could sing. Maybe you've heard the the, the song of the redeemed, the song the angels cannot sing. You've heard people say that? Because the angels aren't redeemed. This is a song only redeemed sinners can sing. But this is the unique song only the 144,000 young, persevering, first fruits Jewish evangelist guys could sing. They'll be singing on the, on the mountain with the Lamb, Jesus. And again, it's described, this singing is like the roar of many waters, like the sound of thunder, like the sound of harpists playing their harps. Right here, the Bible isn't saying angels are floating around playing harps. It's saying the, the music that came is indescribably powerful and beautiful, like thunder, like a waterfall, like harps. I've been to Multnomah Falls and stood behind the falls as the huge falls comes out of the mountain. You can't hear yourself talk. Imagine a huge thunder thunderclap, a huge waterfall, a sound of music so beautiful, it's indescribable. We have something to look forward to someday. Earth doesn't even, can't even touch, folks, for those who fear the Lamb, who follow the Lamb, who tremble at His Word. God, God-fearing people. So, you see something else about them. It says, they're singing a new song, verse 3, before the throne, before the four living creatures, before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000, and they're called redeemed from the earth. Redeemed out of the earth. A little bit later, they're called redeemed from mankind. They're, my parents used to teach me this. This is a biblical idea. We don't talk a lot, a lot about this. My parents used to say, Kenny, we are separated people. We're separated. We shouldn't be separated from other believers. We shouldn't be snooty and pious and, and pseudo-pious and hateful toward unbelievers. But we're not of this world if we're redeemed. We're redeemed out of this world. The big Bible words for salvation like justification and propitiation and imputation these and redemption, these big words all have stories behind them, and the stories all have settings. 
And what's really interesting is this word redeemed has a setting and a story. What is the story behind the word redeemed? What's the, what's the setting behind the word redeemed? Well, the, the word justified has the setting of, of, of the courtroom. And, and, and the word propitiation has the setting of the, the temple. But, but the word redeemed has the setting of the marketplace. Agora, the word has that in it, in the original. Agora, the, the, the ancient Near East had the, the major outdoor mall where buying and selling happened and things were bought and sold. Food was bought and sold. People were bought and sold. People were bought and sold. And if you had the misfortune of being a slave, you were a commodity to be traded and you were publicly humiliated and you were, you were worth money for people to buy. And the picture here is there's a price on your head that's called a ransom price. And if a person comes along and buys you, they own you and you have to work for them. But what if a very kind and loving and good and benevolent person came along and paid a ransom for you and set you free? Now that would be a day that would make you want to sing. And one day when we were lost in our sin, a slave to our sin, Jesus came along and with his blood paid the ransom price for us and set us free. Hallelujah. And that doesn't put a spring in your step and a song in your heart, nothing will. This is what we have here. These are redeemed. That's how you make it through this broken world. You never forget that you were a slave to sin and Jesus paid the ransom with his blood and he set you free and you will always be free. Ah, oh, that'll make you sing. Isn't that beautiful? Notice this. They had, verse 4, not defiled themselves with women. They were virgins. Now, some Bible scholars say it means that these were set aside, especially not to marry. There's nothing wrong with sexual relations with a woman. That's a pure holy thing. It was God's idea within the bounds of marriage, as the Scriptures say. Some say they're, they're, that what the Scriptures are talking about here is spiritually set apart. Some say they, these were actually folk, they were, they were unmarried men focused on following the Lord. We do know they were morally pure and spiritually uh, set, a, set a, apart to God. They did not defile themselves. And notice this, it says, they follow the lamb, where, is this sweet? They follow the lamb wherever he goes. It's like, Jesus, where are we going today? Hey, Jesus, what are we doing today? What, what did you have in mind today? I'm just following you. That's all I'm doing. And so, do, do you see what I'm saying here? The, these six characteristics of these followers of the Lamb, the 144,000, are given to us in direct contrast to what, everything that had happened before. The blasphemers in chapter 12 and 13 are displaced by the praisers in chapter 14 and verse 1. Right? They, and, and they're also given to us as if they can do this, they're the first fruits, you can do this. You and I can be pure and holy before God through the help of the Holy Spirit justification and sanctification process of sanctification we can live a, a holy life you and i can have a song in our heart and a spring in our step a spiritual victory in our hearts if they can we can they're the first fruits we're also in the harvest of righteous people and they can have their heart fixed on following the lamb and we can have our hearts fixed on following the lamb you get up in the morning and you just say to the lord lord i love you thank you for this day where are we going today? What are we doing today? Little Hopi, our daughter, our baby, when she was little, we, she had the sweetest little, still does, but as a little girl, she just had the sweetest spirit. And she would often say, she would often just say to us, where are we going where? Where are we going where? 
almost like, what, what are we going to do now? That's the way we are. That's the heart we ought to have for Jesus. Lord, I know you're doing something. Can I go with you? I know you're, do- I know you're up to something good. Can I be in, in on that? This is the way these men were, followers of the Lamb. And these have been redeemed from mankind, first fruits of God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found. This is a contrast to the blasphemous false prophets in the text before. They're lying. They're misrepresenting God. The 144,000 are just telling God's truth. And then finally, what does it say about them? They're found blameless. Not meaning they're sinlessly perfect. The Bible doesn't teach that. But they're blameless before God for two reasons. Their position before God is perfection before God because they're given the righteousness of Christ. And their future is to be delivered from the very power of sin in their life. And again, these things can be true about you and I too. We can be instantly made right with God, justified before God, and we can progressively get more and more like the Lord, live more and more a holy life. Don't be discouraged. This can be you. So what a beautiful thing to look at that and to see the prospect. This is what the Holy Spirit wanted the churches to see that when they saw the picture of the 144,000 square-jawed, barrel-chested, Christ-following, pure men singing. I wonder if they were singing in parts. I bet you they were. Now, the text is going to take a dark turn, and there's a severe mercy in it. Before judgment falls, one of the things that you notice in all these chapters describing the tribulation is no one can ever charge God with not being honest about what's about to happen on the earth. No one can ever say, nobody told me, nobody warned me. I mean, he sent the two witnesses. He sent the saints. He sent 144,000 Apostle Paul, Billy Graham types. And now he's going to actually send angels that are going to, all over the earth, in every language to every people, going to give three final warnings. The first warning, kind of positive, the eternal gospel. The second warning is going to be the system of this world the Babylon, the system of this world is going to fail. Your idols are going to fail you. This thing's going down. And then, and then the final one is very ominous. It's like a, 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 a frightening kind of description of God's fury and wrath, his righteous, steady, just anger against sin that's going to be poured out on rebel, rebel hearts. You know, it's not hard for us to imagine that there are people in the world who are very depraved in ugly ways. You might read about them and just do vile, terrible things. And we think, oh yeah, there's a special corner in hell reserved for them. Or those, are the, yeah, those people are going to hell. They need to go to hell. What's a little harder for us to realize is God is so holy that when, when the king says, I want you to submit to my kingship. And we go find a little spot in the woods and create our little campground in the woods. And, and we, we, we uh, say, well, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to live my own life and have my own little kingdom in the woods. And then, and then he sends an emissary out and says, there's going to be a time when he's going to sweep through the woods and he's going to take captive all of those who are living in rebellion against him. You have, I, I warn you, and, and, I, and I offer you an opportunity to, for amnesty, come back to the kingdom and swear fealty to the king and get under his 
power and king lordship. And then you say, no, thank you. I'm doing fine in my little campgrounds in the woods. Don't be surprised someday if he comes back, even for those who aren't practicing vile depravity, but just have a heart of rebellion against the king and won't submit to him, they also will be swept into judgment. You can't say, I'm going to have my own little kingdom. I'm going to have my own little morality. I'm going to have my own little pleasures apart from God. All those who have not shown loyalty to the king, fear of God, submission to the king, recognize their own sinfulness, even if they aren't the vilest person that you know. But one day fall into this judgment. This is the picture that you have in these three angels. And, in, and with this picture of these three angels, you also have a little picture. You have a huge picture of those who will be forever cursed. And you have a beautiful picture of those who will be forever blessed. That's in this next chunk. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead. He says, fear God, verse 7, give him glory because of the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Over and over in Revelation, you're going to notice that he says, you should worship him, you should fear him, you should give him glory because he made everything. He's like, stop monkeying around with evolution. I made everything. You don't need to believe that silliness. I made everything. I spoke everything into existence. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I just believe in six 24-hour days, he spoke everything into existence. If he can do virgin birth, he can do created everything. I just believe that. Put me in that category. He made everything. He says, you should submit to me. You should fear me. You should glorify me. You should worship me because I'm the one who made everything. The God who created everything is coming back to judge the earth. We should worship him because he made everything. Teach your kids, God created them. Second thing, he, in Revelation, it says this over again, and the lamb is worthy because he was what? Worthy because he was slain. Over and over again, we sing about the cross because why do we worship him? He's the one who created everything, and he's the lamb who died for us, was buried and rose again. He was the lamb that was slain. But even more than that, in this book, there's something else that's a little surprising. In this book, the emphasis goes to this, though. Why do we worship him? Not just because he's the king, the one who created everything, and Jesus participated in that. And not just the lamb that was slain, and Jesus did that, but because he's coming back to judge, he has every right to do that more than anything else in this book. It says, worship him because he's the coming judge. Worship him because he's the one that you stand before in judgment one day if you're an unbeliever. And so the first angel says this, Second angel says that, hey, the world system is going to fail you. Don't invest in that. Babylon is a collective reference to that. Babylon the Great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The world political system, the world religious system, the world economic system that is anti-God and anti-Bible and anti-truth looks very powerful. It's going to fail someday. That spiritual harlot that pulls into it the loyalties that belong to God. If you put your loyalty in that, it's going to fail you. This angel flies over the earth and says, that's about to go down. Now, the third angel then, and this is a, a powerful, it kind of ramps up. Verse 9, if anyone worships the beast, its image receives the mark on forehead or hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. 
these worshipers of the beast in its image, whoever receives the mark in its name. This is a consistent teaching of the Bible. There's a warning of eternal conscious torment in hell. You can't, you can't deny this without doing violence to the scriptures and the teaching of Jesus. Nobody warned about hell more than Jesus. I mean, and if there is a hell, wouldn't a good person warn you about that? And that's what Jesus did. Why do we send missionaries? Because we, want them to be, because we want them to go Americanize the world? Is that why? Because we want them to be capitalist? Is that why we send missionaries? Because we want them to have democracy? Is that why we send missionaries? Have you read the, the stories of the mission, missionary pioneers? They go into the world to rescue people for the glory of God and to keep them from being in eternal conscious torment forever that this scripture is warned so clearly about and Jesus warned so clearly about. This is why we plead with men to be saved. This is why we fear and tremble, fear God. There's a heaven to be gained. There's a hell to shun, as they used to say. And this is a, a, an ominous warning about that. Then you also have a contrast, but those, those are people that are forever cursed. But the believer who's put himself, who's trusted in Christ, He's described in verses 12 and 13. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. They're called, we're called the redeemed, and we're called saints, holy ones. Redeemed saints. The others are called the, the um, earth dwellers. You got your, 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 soul, your, whole, your whole value system tied up on earthly things. But the believers are saints and redeemed in verse 12 and they keep the commandments of God, and they have their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed, eternally favored, are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Even if you're in the tribulation, whether there's the rapture before that or not, or the tribulation saints that die, there will be those who die, but they're blessed, it says, because they died in the Lord from now on. And then the Spirit says, yes, blessed indeed, says the Spirit. They, and they, they rest from their labors and their works follow them. Think about this for a minute. Even though your motives will always be slightly mixed, anything that you do for God, he's going to stimulate anything good in you. And then he's going to reward you for that as a believer in heaven. Your works, your, your, the, heaven's described as rest, where, where you, you're given a reward, your works follow you. The deeds follow them. Now, that brings us to the last section, the harvest of earth and, and, a, white, and a white cloud uh, and the third thing. And, and we'll talk about that next week. Years ago, my family, when they, Lois and I, our children, when they were all small, and you could put the whole family in the car and go somewhere together in the van, one of our favorite things to do was to put the whole family in the car and go up into the Ohio Amish country in Holmes County, Ohio, a beautiful, beautiful countryside. And the whole area was a, kind of an Amish Mennonite area with very neat farms. It's a beautiful place, good places to eat, little shops that Lois liked, places where we could picnic with the kids. We would spend our day up in Holmes County on my day off on a Monday. One day we went up in there as a family. And while we were up there in Holmes County driving around, we saw a sign. There was a big tent that was erected on a hilltop. And a sign said, Revival tonight, 7 o'clock, something like that. Lois and I looked at each other and we thought, how fun would it be to go to a big Amish Mennonite revival in a tent outside? Do you want to do that? Yes. And so we hung around that day after we had the day up in the, uh, up in the countryside. And, 
And we went, and, but when evening came, we'd had our dinner, and a big storm blew through the area, and, and the wind and rain knocked over the tent and knocked out the power. We drove up on the hill that evening when the storm had cleared and the sun came back out, and the sign said that the revival had been moved to a large Mennonite church. So Lois and I said, well, let's just go over to the church, and let's just go to the, to the revival at the church. So we did. We walked into the church that night. There were over 500 people, most of them in plain clothes, Amish Mennonite people. And they were all packed in shoulder to shoulder, big families of people. And they had no microphones. They had no electronics. They just had a hymn book and hundreds of Christians gathered together. And, and that night, as we gathered together, I remember that they, a quartet got up and, and sang a song, a quartet of young men. Be holy as I am holy, they sang. And then they sang a beautiful old hymn. It's a hymn that I remembered from my childhood. I hadn't, hadn't sung it, hadn't really thought about it a lot. And as they sang it in four-part harmony, lifting up their voices in the Jewish beauty, it's like I, I heard it again for the first time. Maybe, maybe you've heard it. It's the title of my message right now. The hymn's called marching to Zion. Chorus kind of like this. goes like this. You ever heard it? We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion. The beautiful city of God. You want to sing that with us? Let's stand together and let's just sing, we're marching to Zion. The promise that God has given to those who fear him will one day stand with the 144,000 marching to Zion. This is on hymn 489 if you want to use your hymnal so you can look up there for the words. Sing with us. Here we go. Come we that love the Lord and let our joy I loved to go to my grandfather's farm, and I was with him on the farm one day, way up back in the back of the west pasture. And from where we were working that day, you couldn't see a single human structure. 
and my grandpa shut the equipment off that day and things got really quiet and he got off the tractor and he said, come with me, I want to I wanna show you something. So I followed my grandpa over to a little spot on the hillside and he goes, you see that? And I go, no. He goes, look, out, look on the ground. And I couldn't see anything. He goes, look really close. You see that? See there were little white berries growing on the ground. They were a patch of wild strawberries. Grandpa says, wild strawberries grow here. Try them. I go, no. He goes, yeah, really, they're good. And he he bent over and he took one. It didn't look like much. He gave one to me and it tasted sweet. He said, anytime you want to, you can come up on this hillside and you can eat the wild strawberries. And that night when we were singing, the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. We have to look forward to the sweetness of heaven, but we have sweetness on the way. Sing this verse. The hill of Zion hears a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly field. Before we reach the heavenly field. Oh, walk, oh, walk the golden streets, oh, walk the golden streets. We're marching to Zion. Hallelujah. Let's pray. God, I pray, draw to yourself today any who are outside of Christ, that they would not be eternally cursed, but they would be eternally blessed. Strengthen our hearts today and give us courage that are the redeemed saints, that we can always look forward one day to a time when we stand in the new heaven and the new earth, 144 thousand redeemed evangelists and and the living creatures and the four and twenty elders and all the created beings and the church of the living Christ and with the lamb and we sing in Jesus name we pray amen do come this way if we can be